This morning we are going to continue our study in the book of Ecclesiastes. We're going to talk about the subject of work. And I will tell you, uh, I like to work. All right. I really, I like working. I didn't always like working. When I was a kid, I liked to play. I would say I was committed to play and committed to being really good at playing. My typical day, I would get home from school and I would uh, drop off my books and go out to play and play as long as I possibly could. I had a friend who lived down the street that he and I played together most days, Rusty Curry. I'd go down to his house or he'd come up to my house and we would play football or basketball or baseball or stickball or street hockey or whatever, you know, whatever fancy struck us on that particular day. And we really didn't argue about what we had to play because we knew that we had all afternoon and we had the next day and the next day and we could just play and play and play and play. It was great. When I didn't have neighbor kids around to play with, then I would just go outside and play by myself. And I'd take a baseball and I'd throw it up on the roof and I'd catch it. And I'd throw it up on the roof and I'd catch it. And I'd do that for hours. Or I'd take my bow and I'd go in the woods and I would shoot arrows into a target in the woods. Or if the weather was bad, I'd stay inside and I'd play. And I'd take hockey pucks and I would shoot them for hours against my dad's bench. I'd just destroy it. Just shoot them and shoot them and shoot them and shoot them. I'd get tired of that. And then I would take the ping pong table and I'd put it up, right, in an L. And I would just play, right? I know you're thinking Forrest Gump. And so I just, for hours, literally, just playing by myself, playing, playing, playing. Now, the worst part of the day was when my mom called. Right, because that meant play was over, and it was a terrible moment. You know, if she'd call me back for dinner, it was a tragedy if she would call me back to work. And of course, I was never one of those kids who didn't hear my mom's voice. I just immediately came running. <laughs> but now I enjoy work. I didn't always enjoy work. Now I like to work, but I would argue that most people do not enjoy work. In fact, there was a recent study that was conducted here in the United States. of American workers describe themselves as disengaged. In other words, they're just going through the motions of work. They're working to live. Another 18% describe themselves as actively disengaged, meaning they hate their job in their workplace. In other words, about 70% of Americans don't like work at all in any form or fashion. They regard work as a curse, right? And work is just a necessary evil. And I would argue that for many others... Work becomes a form of addiction. Right? It's, uh, it's a means to an end, a means to self-fulfillment or a means to uh, accomplishment for which I get praise or a sense of security through the money that I've earned or so forth, but not a really biblical perspective of work. So what we want to talk about this morning is a biblical perspective of work, and this is what I'm going to argue. I'm going to argue that work is actually a blessing. It's a blessing that can feel like a curse, but it's not a curse, it's a blessing, right? So rather than actually starting in Ecclesiastes this morning, we're going to start in the book of Genesis and work our way to Ecclesiastes. So I want you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 2 and verse 1. Genesis chapter 2, verse 1. It says, Thus the heavens and the earth were completed and all their hosts. By the seventh day God completed his work which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work, which he had created and made. In Genesis 1 through 2, there are actually five verbs that are used for God's work. They're used a total of 15 times. You could describe Genesis 1 and 2 as, in the beginning, God worked. God worked and he worked and he worked. That's what God was doing in the beginning. And then God rested. He didn't rest because he was tired 
or even because all the work was complete, he rested because he was celebrating what he had accomplished in his work. And he'd actually been celebrating all along, right? At the end of each day, God would look at his work and he would say, this is good. You get to the next day, this is good. It is good. It is good. It is good. And then it is very good. He'd celebrate every day. And then at the end of six days of labor, on the seventh day, he stopped and he celebrated for an entire day the work of his hand. Not because he was tired. Not because it was all done. But because he was taking a moment to celebrate the creativity that he had expressed that was a blessing to earth and eventually to mankind. In the beginning, God worked. The pinnacle of God's work was the creation of man. Turn back one chapter, Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, over the cattle, and over all the earth, over every moving thing that moves on the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. The pinnacle of God's work or creation God made man, and then he invited man to join him in work. Before the curse ever occurred, God worked, and then man worked. And there are seven verbs that describe the work of man. In the beginning, God worked. In the beginning, man worked with God. God made man in his image, and he commissioned him to come alongside and work with God. And actually, the pinnacle of God's creation uh, was man, specifically uh, Eve, right? Mankind, Eve. God got to uh, the final point of his creation, that, that last thing, the most beautiful thing that he made, was woman. And why did he create Eve? Because Adam was lonely? Well, Adam probably was lonely, but remember, Adam did have God. Right? He had, he had some, some form of fellowship. He had somebody to talk to. He wasn't, in that sense, completely alone. Certainly, he felt that there was a void. There wasn't one like him. But what we're told in the text is the reason that Eve was created is because Adam had a job to do, and he couldn't do it alone. What did he need? He needed a co-worker. He needed a co-laborer. And so Eve was created to work alongside of Adam in relationship with Adam, in relationship with God, to accomplish the work that God had done for them. In other words, if I can put it more simply... When we work, we worship. Work is a form of worship. Colossians chapter 3, verse 23. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord. Whatever you do can be a form of worship to the Lord. Notice it doesn't matter what the work is. What matters is why are you doing it? Are you doing it? For the Lord, as an act of worship to the Lord. What's most critical? The motive in our work. Because work is a blessing. Work is a gift from God. Notice uh, Adam and Eve were actually uh, gardeners, right? It doesn't matter. Are you working inside the house or outside the house? Are you working for pay, compensation? Are you working for free? Is it volunteer work? Are you working with your hands? Are you working mostly with your mind and creating? Are you working with ideas or are you working with materials? Whatever your hand finds to do, do it heartily as to the Lord because it's an opportunity to work alongside God in creation, right? Out of nothing, God made something and then he arranged and he put things in order. And so what is godly work? Well, godly work is not 
creating out of nothing. We're taking what God has already made and we're helping to arrange it or to rearrange it, whether it's ideas or materials. That's the essence and the nature of work. And all of that was given before the curse, right? Before the curse. Read with me again Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. It says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, that is mankind, because male and female were created in the image of God. If I can state it differently, when you work, you're fulfilling God's design for your nature. To be in the image of God means that you work, right? It means that you reflect and you radiate the, the character and the personality, the attributes of God. It also means that God designed you so that you could work alongside him. There, there was no other creature that God made to help him govern over this earth that he had created. Right? No one else could stand in and, and be, in a sense, in God's place, arranging and rearranging material other than man and woman. A man named Tom Nelson wrote a great book. It's called Work Matters. If you want to jot that down, Work Matters. He made this comment. He said, being made in God's image, we have been designed to work. To be fellow workers with God. To be an image bearer is to be a worker. In our work, we are to show off God's excellence, creativity, and glory to the world. We work because we bear the image of one who works. Now, this is a very different concept than most of the ancient world. Right? In the ancient world, the gods did not work. Now, to be a god was to not work. The gods created mankind to do the work for them, right? To bring them things to eat and things to drink, but not to work. So what was the pinnacle in a sense of human experience? Not working, right? That's where you wanted to get to the point where you didn't have to work. So the pharaohs and other kings regarded themselves as gods. The result was they didn't have to work. They were under no obligation to work. When they died, all of the wealth they had accumulated would be put into a tomb with them so they could take it to the next world so they wouldn't have to work, right? Because the gods don't work, people work. In other words, people, all people, were created really as slaves to the gods. You're a slave. That was the essence of the worldview, the ideal being the man who does not have to work. But I'm telling you, in the biblical worldview, We were designed to work, and if we don't work, we will experience a sense of loss and longing because we actually need to work because God works. The image of God means that there's something in us that actually needs to work. Now, turn with me to the book of Ecclesiastes and verse 2. Chapter 2, excuse me. Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Verse 24. Chapter 2, verse 24. Solomon writes, There is nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and to tell himself that his labor is good. This also I have seen that it is from the hand of God. For who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him? Turn to chapter 3 and verse 12. I know that there is nothing better for them than to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime. Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good in all his labor. It is the gift of God. So to work and then to stop and to enjoy the fruit of your labor, that's a gift from God. Solomon says, who can actually really enjoy that without acknowledging God is the source of it. God is the one who gave me mind and body, who gave me strength and thought 
to work, to create, to rearrange or to arrange, whether it's ideas or materials, and then to enjoy the fruit of my labor. Solomon says, this is actually, this is a gift from God, right? So work six days and rest one. That was the cycle that was set up in creation, in the order of creation, because it reflects who God is. And so the Israelites were commanded in the law to work and then to rest, take a Sabbath and stop and rest. Recall that uh, the law, the Ten Commandments were repeated two times, right? Uh, Exodus 20 and then Deuteronomy chapter 5. Remember the Sabbath, keep it holy, set it apart. However, in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy chapter 5, the motivation is different for resting. In Exodus 20, it says you need to take the Sabbath because you're made in the image of God. Deuteronomy 5, it says you need to keep the Sabbath because you're not a slave. You're not a slave because you're in the image of God. And you need to rest because God worked and then God rested. And so work is a blessing, right? It's a gift. It's before the curse. It's something that actually honors God. It's a way that we worship God. It's also a blessing to us when we fall in line with the order that God has made us. And if you want to experience disorder in your life, look to live a life of complete leisure and no work. You want to find people who are really out of sorts. It's those who completely stop working. We need to work. Work is a gift from God. It's a blessing from God. Second, work blesses our family and our friends. Look at me, Ecclesiastes chapter 4 and verse 7. It says, Then I looked again at vanity under the sun, There was a certain man without a dependent, having neither a son nor a brother, yet there was no end to all his labor. Indeed, his eyes were not satisfied with riches, and he never asked, For whom am I laboring and depriving myself of pleasure? This too is vanity, and it is a grievous task. Solomon looks at a man who is unwilling to stop and to reflect, and what he sees is this lonely miser who is wasting his life, right? He's just working, and he's working, and he's working. He has no family or friends that he's working with or for, And so his life is a waste. But notice he goes on. Verse 9. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. And let me just stop and say right now. Okay. uh, this Maybe you've heard this hundreds of times as a wedding sermon verse. Right? Or maybe you even have it embroidered and put in a little plaque above the door of your house to say this is our marriage verse. I'm I'm just telling you that's wonderful. But it's not about marriage. (laughs) It's not about marriage. It's actually about work. He says, on the one hand, there's this lonely miser who's not working with or for anyone. Then he says, but on the other hand, those who work with and for closely others, their lives are rich and satisfying and safe. Verse 9, two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. For if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls when there's not another to lift him up. Furthermore, if two lie down together, they keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? And if one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. Certainly there's application to your marriage, so feel safe with your embroidery. But it's about work, right? It's about work. When you work with and for others, there's a blessing to you and there's a blessing to others. That's part of the gift of work. Third, your work blesses the needy. Your work blesses the needy. Paul wrote in Acts chapter 20 when he was addressing the Ephesian elders, he said, In everything I showed you, that by working hard in this manner you must help the weak and remember 
The words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Remember, Paul was a missionary and his work was to go out and share the gospel. But there were many times when he didn't have any money, so what did he do? He just went back to work. And he worked to supply for himself and to supply for those around him. And when he, ever, he had excess, he could supply not for just for himself and those around him. He could actually supply to those who had need. And Paul worked and then Paul gave. And he was generous. He says, all that you're doing is following the example of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus worked, right? And the eternal son of God, second member of the Trinity, came to earth and he took on human flesh. He came in the form of a carpenter. right? Just, he came in the form of a carpenter. A man who worked with his hands. He didn't come in the form of a statesman or a politician. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but he came in the form of a carpenter. Just a working man. And then he would say, when his carpentry time was done... I have come to work the works of him who has sent me. My father is working until now, and I am working until now, because God works and I work, right? But remember, it said that God finished all of his work of creation, and then he rested. But then we had the fall, and God went back to work with the work of redemption. And he was working all the way up through Jesus Christ, and now he continues to work in the work of redemption. God loves to work. God's always working, and he's at work. God is at work this morning. He's at work this morning because he's wanting to, to change us and mold us and transform us. And he's allowing his spirit to work in our hearts and our minds to shift our perspective on work so that we can find joy and freedom and some sense of godly satisfaction. And God is working right now. And God loves to work. And when we work, we have an opportunity to work not just for ourselves, but to follow the example of Jesus and to bless those who are in need. Okay. Your work blesses the needy. I think Joseph is a perfect illustration of this. Remember? Joseph's story is that he worked for a completely, utterly pagan government. Joseph had no Christian co-workers. Right? Partly because there were no Christians yet. But he didn't even have right, any believing co-workers. Joseph is on his own. Right? As, as far as we know, he's the only Yahweh worshiper down in the entire nation of Egypt. And yet in this completely pagan setting, Joseph used his administrative and leadership skills to bless the entire land of Egypt when the famine came. And then all of the surrounding nations, including providing provision for for his own family so they would not starve. His work became a blessing to those who were in need. So work blesses the needy. Next, work blesses your co-workers. In contradiction to or contrast to Joseph, you probably do have some Christian co-workers, so you can bless your Christian co-workers. How do you do that? Well, you work as unto the Lord. Right, you work as unto the Lord. I, I, how many of your co-workers, Christian or otherwise, they, they hit Monday morning and they say, awesome, it's Monday. Right? I mean, American pastime is complaint about work. Oh, it's Monday. I haven't had my cup of coffee. I haven't had my second cup of coffee. Ah, grum, 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 grum. Right? That's what we do. Now, you can step into work as unto the Lord and be an example of your Christian coworkers, looking for the opportunity to bless those who don't know Jesus, to bless your boss, to exalt the efforts of your boss or your company, make a profit for your company, to do good to all of those around you. You can help shape the attitude toward work of all your Christian coworkers, you can certainly bless the non-Christians around you, can't you? Right? You may have opportunities to share the gospel with them, right? to speak the words of life. And I would strongly encourage you to look for those opportunities, but I would say 
being a Christian coworker is really much more than that. And because your company, your boss, pays you to work, not to evangelize, right? So you may have those opportunities, those moments when it is your time, but when it's their time and their dollar, you should be working to bless them, right? That's what we do. And so when you begin to treat your coworkers as creatures made in the very image of God, and you show them honor and respect, and you're not using them, but you're working alongside them and helping them grow as people and as workers, you're displaying a really a Christian worldview in the workplace. Another great book I want to recommend to you, Timothy Keller's book, uh, Every Good Endeavor. He said this, so to be a Christian in business then means much more than just being honest or not sleeping with your coworkers. It even means more than personal evangelism or holding a Bible study at the office. Rather, it means thinking out the implications of the gospel worldview and God's purposes for your whole work life and for the whole organization that is under your influence as a Christian, right? You are bringing a Christian worldview, which includes excellence, right? Excellence in your work. So that you can have influence and do good for others. Okay, that's what it means. I remember when I was a kid, uh, my dad made a comment to me. He said, you know, his car needed work. And he said, I'm, I'm not looking for a Christian mechanic. I'm looking for a competent mechanic. Because right? he, he had known a Christian mechanic who wasn't ethical or competent. How much better to be a Christian who's also competent, right? Who does his or her work well and also does it unto the Lord, as an example and as a witness, maybe getting to share the words of the gospel or maybe not, maybe just being an influence for a worldview that sees that God exists and that God is one who works and that work is good, that God has made us in his image and consequently we respect and honor one another in the workplace. That's a very different concept of work than most of us experience. I love this quote by Martin Luther. He said, God doesn't need our good works, but our neighbor does. Isn't that good? God doesn't need our good works, but our neighbor does. Well, what's he talking about? Uh, as leader of the Reformation, he's got to say, look, God doesn't need our good works. What's he talking about? Saying there's nothing that we do to merit or earn God's favor for eternal life. That is a free gift. That's the beauty of the gospel. Jesus worked so that we don't have to, right? Jesus accomplished fully and finally all that we need for salvation and eternal life. And so we just trust in that. That's a gift to us. God doesn't need our good works. But, Luther said, our neighbor does. This is what God has determined is the way that Christians would bless the world. So, Ephesians 2, 8, 9. By grace you're saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It is what? It's the gift of God, not as a result of your work, so that no one can boast. And then 2, 10. For we are what? We are God's workmanship. God loves to work. And you know his favorite product is you. We are his workmanship. We are God's craftsmanship. Each one made unique and special. Each one given a unique sphere of influence in this world. We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus, which God prepared beforehand. Works that we would walk in them. So from all of eternity, God knew these good works that we would do. He mapped them out ahead of time. So we would walk in them, and as we walk in them, we would bless our friends and our family, the lost, Christians, non-Christians, the world. We would do good. We would create, we would arrange, we would rearrange, all for God's honor and glory, and all for the good of others. That's work, right? That's work. 
And so it doesn't matter what you do, but why you do it. Work at its essence biblically is a blessing. Work is a blessing. Now, here's the corollary to it. In a broken, fallen world, work is a blessing that sometimes begins to feel like a curse. Why is that? Well, I want you to turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 2 with me in verse 17. Ecclesiastes 2 verse 17. Solomon says, So I hated life. I hated Monday morning. (laughs) I hated life. For the work which had been done under the sun was grievous to me, because everything is futility and striving after the wind. Thus I hated all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun. For I must leave it to the man who will come after me, and who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool. Yet he will have control over all the fruit of my labor for which I have labored by acting wisely under the sun. This too is vanity. Therefore I completely despaired of all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun. When there is a man who has labored with wisdom and knowledge and skill, then he gives his legacy to the one who has not labored with them. This too is vanity. It's a great evil. For what does a man get in all his labor and in his striving which he labors under the sun? Because all his days, all the days of his task are painful and grievous. Even at night, his mind does not rest. This too is vanity. Now remember who we're dealing with here. Solomon's wisest man who's ever lived. Uh, possibly one of the wealthiest men who ever lived. He uh, has incredible accomplishments. He has writings that have gone worldwide. They've given him fame. People want to come and they want to sit at his feet. Solomon. Tell us of your wisdom, right? And if on any given night his, his wife isn't really praising his wisdom, he can go down the hallway and say, you're next, you're next, right? Hundreds of times. He's got hundreds of wives, hundreds of concubines, all the pleasures of the world, best food, best house in the city, best house actually in his nation, maybe one of the best houses that's ever been built, ever. And yet Solomon says, all my labors seem like absolute futility and I hated my work under the sun. Why is that? Let's go back to Genesis again, chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. Read with me verse 16. To the woman God said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband. Then to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it, cursed is the ground because of you. In toil or in pain, you will eat of it all of the days of your life. In other words, work is not the curse, but work is under the curse, right? Because when the curse came, it covered everything that had been created. Work is not the curse, but it's under the curse, and consequently, it begins to feel like a curse. And so Solomon would say, what's crooked cannot be straightened. What's lacking cannot be found. Work is frustrating. Again, as Keller says, Sin runs through the heart of every worker and the culture of every enterprise. And so work is frustrating. It's not the curse, but it begins to feel like a curse. Why is that? Let me give you some thoughts. I would say uh, that for many of us, we begin our work life as romantics. Students, I think this especially applies to you in the stage in life that you are at right now. You begin as romantics. That is, uh, you have an idea in your mind that your work will change the world forever. You, you might not walk out of here with that same idea today. All right, turn back to Ecclesiastes with, Ecclesiastes with me, chapter 2. 
Let's read again verse 18. Thus I hated all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun. For I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool, yet he will have control over all the fruit of my labor for which I have labored by acting wisely under the sun. This too is vanity. Solomon says the results just don't last, right? I labored wisely and I I left something really good behind. And the next person comes along and they squander it. The results don't last. The results uh, don't seem to matter even. Verse 10 of chapter 1. Is there anything of which which one might say, see this, it is new. Already it has existed for ages which were before us. So what's the point? There's nothing really new under the sun. Uh, Matt Morton told me a great illustration of this. When he was in high school, he got a job at a law firm. It's a patent law firm. And his job was shredding paper. He's a high school student, so it's nothing really complicated. So he sat in the back room and he shredded paper for hours. He would just feed documents into the shredder. It gave him a lot of time to consider the meaninglessness of his life in particular, right? Just shred, shred, shred. And he said, you know, but Matt being a very thoughtful guy, he said at one point he just stopped and he began to read some of these documents. He realized what he was shredding were people's uh, patents, right? They're their invention, their, their idea that they thought was new under the sun and would make them rich and change the world. And a high school student was sitting in a back room going, zzzzt, zzzzt, right? Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What's the point? Things don't last. And the results are forgotten. Verse 11. There's no remembrance of the earlier things and also of the later things which will occur. There will be... For them, no remembrance among all those who come later still. We begin as romantics. Our work will be new. It will be novel. It will change the world. It will last forever. And we begin to see, "Mm, maybe I won't live long enough to see that happen. And then we become cynics, right? We become cynics, not not realists uh, who just, you know, live comfortably with the way the world is, but I would say uh, cynics who uh, just give up on work being meaningful at all. But here's the reality. The reality is that results come hard in a broken and fallen world. The areas of life that should be the most rewarding are often the most frustrating. Let me read to you again Genesis chapter 3. Verse 7 says, Then the eyes of both of them, that is Adam and Eve, were opened. They knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves loin coverings. In other words, as soon as they broke God's commandment, and they took the fruit, what happened immediately? Marriage got hard. (laughs) Marriage got hard. Marriage which should be satisfying and fulfilling and rewarding and rich. The first effect of the fall on Adam and Eve is that they felt unsafe with one another. They felt vulnerable with one another. And then they began to fight. And I think I'm just guessing here, but I'm guessing that there's, there's not a marriage in here that hasn't had a little bit of conflict. Right. At some point in time, okay. marriage is hard. Verse 16, to the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband. He will rule over you. Hey, marriage is going to be hard. Childbirth is going to be hard. At least that's what I'm told. <laughs> At least that's what I'm told. And, you know, and I have seen it and it looked hard. I was doing my part, right? I was there. Squeeze my hand and breathe. 
right? I mean, I studied hard. I did my class. I studied hard. I did my part. She oh, come on, you know, squeeze, squeezing her heart, hand, breathing. You know, but then that really wasn't helping working. So, okay, you know, okay, step back, right? So I was waiting for my part to start again, my help in this process. And I, I confess I was hungry. Because, you know, the whole process had started kind of in the middle of the night and I was hungry. And so my mother-in-law walked in and she brought me a Subway sandwich. And so I stood in the corner, I unwrapped my Subway and I began to eat my Subway sandwich. And my wife looked over at me and she said, stop crunching. (laughs) So so I set down my Subway sandwich and I stepped back and I put my hands in my pocket. She said, get your hands out of your pockets. (laughs) So I took him out. (laughs) Marriage is hard. Childbirth is hard. Some of us know that directly, some of us indirectly. It's hard. Work is hard. Thorns and thistles, Adam. Thorns and thistles. You're going to work by the sweat of your brow, and actually the word for labor or toil there is literally the word for pain. That's reality. That's reality. And so many of us, we, we become uh, cynics in the process. We give up on work as an opportunity for us to worship and serve God. Instead, we work to not work. Right? We work with the goal of the weekend. Everybody's working for the weekend or working for vacation or working for retirement. And our ideal is to never have to work again. Okay? That's kind of what's in our minds. That's a, that's a cynical view of work and the value of work. Others of us uh, bow down as worshipers to work. Uh, In other words, we expect something from work as if work is a God itself. Or maybe we don't worship work itself, but what work can give us. The Tower of Babel is the perfect illustration of this. They said, come, let us gather together. We're going to burn bricks, right? Because we can only stack so high with stones. They are irregular, but if we make bricks the same shape, we can stack much higher. God said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. They said, no, let's come together because then we can build up higher and we can do what? Make a name for ourselves, right? That is work is worship. Okay. Let us use work to make ourselves feel valuable and important. There's a philosopher named Luke Ferry. He wrote this. He said, in the aristocratic worldview, Work was considered a defect, a servile activity, literally reserved for slaves. In the modern worldview, it becomes an arena for self-realization, a means not only of educating oneself, but also of fulfillment. Work becomes the defining activity of man. His aim is to create himself by remaking the world. Now, listen to that last sentence again. Work becomes the defining activity of man. His aim is to create himself by remaking the world. What's the first question we ask people in our culture when we meet them for the first time? We say, what do you do? What's your job, right? And if you happen to only work in the home, you feel compelled to justify your existence because you only work 24 hours a day, seven days a week, but it's not really something that our culture values. So you feel a sense of the need to justify it because our culture only values certain kinds of work and work defines us. Right? Work defines us. We become idolaters of work, what work can give to us. Maybe we don't love the job itself, but we love 
Maybe the power that it gives us or the name that it gives us or the money that it gives us that gives us security. And so we work and we work and we work and we work and we work. We become worshipers of work, but it's never enough. It's never enough. Solomon acknowledged this. Ecclesiastes chapter 6, verse 7. He said, all a man's labor is for his mouth, and yet the appetite is never satisfied. Because all of our towers will crumble, right? Fourth, we remain unreflective. And Solomon really despises the man who doesn't just stop and think, because that's what Solomon's doing all the time. You know, this man who just doesn't stop and step back and say to himself, so uh, why exactly am I working and laboring so hard and finding no enjoyment in it? Maybe there's something with my concept of work itself. Uh, maybe I should stop worshiping. Uh, but what we do, I think, typically is that we, we run and we run and we run. We get limited results. Uh, they're limited, but we think, well, if I run a little bit faster, a little bit further, I'll get better results. And so we just keep running and chasing and chasing. That's really the culture that we live in today. Interesting quote. This is by the woman who, who wrote the book with Tim Keller on work. She said, I couldn't handle the idea that it was all meaningless, so I just put my head down and I worked harder. Right? That's very typical. Very typical American. Right? Not stopping and reflecting and saying, so what is really a biblical concept of work? And so I'd like to give us a few principles to apply. So uh, as we're, we're uh, thinking about application, if I could have the folks who are serving go back and get communion prepared for us. And let me give you a few ideas. Kind of, a, I would say, a, a restored vision of the blessing that work is, could be. First is this. Uh, and I really, what I would like for you to do is this week, I'd like you to write these down and just think about how you think about work, your perspective on work. First principle is this. God works, and he made us to work. Okay, this is really the foundation. Work is not the curse. The curse came later. Okay, work was a part of the created order. You were made in God's image. God is a worker. God loves to work. Son of God works. God made you to work. And really, if you're not working, there will be some sense of void in your life. Okay, we need to work. Okay, we need to be productive. Second, God rested and he made us to rest. Okay, he designed us to need to work and then to need to rest. When does your day begin? When does your day begin? Alarm goes off in the morning, right? And your day begins. Do you know that actually in the Jewish reckoning of time, the day begins in the evening? Genesis chapter 1. There was evening and there was morning one day. Right? The idea is this. Our day begins when we go to sleep and God's working. And then when we get up in the morning, we're just entering into the work that God has already started. Okay, that's the Jewish reckoning of time. Okay? And we can rest at night because we know God is working. God made the human body so it cannot go nonstop. That was on purpose. Okay? Every day you have to stop and rest. God's intention is that every week, every month, so forth, you would stop and rest and celebrate that God has given you the gifts and the talents and the abilities to do something. Not because all the work is done, right? And not even because you feel tired, because you need to stop and celebrate and get reoriented toward work itself, right? So God rested, he made us to rest. The fall made work and rest less than perfectly fulfilling. That's Ecclesiastes, men and women. Live with it or beat your head against a wall trying to change it. It's a broken, fallen world. 
Things that are bent can't always be straightened, and we need to live comfortably with the fact that in this fallen world, we're never going to find the absolute perfect job and never enjoy, perfectly enjoy every moment at every job. Students, this is a strong exhortation to you. When you graduate, I know I've talked to many students for many years, they get paralyzed in the job search process because they're looking for the perfect job right out of college. It doesn't exist. It, it just doesn't exist. Should you use your gifts and talents and discover those and begin to move where God has created you? Absolutely, absolutely. But don't expect that the first job or even the last job will be absolutely perfect. It just doesn't work that way in the fallen world. Our hope, as Tim prayed earlier, is not in this world. Right? Our hope is in the kingdom of God and eternity. That's my fourth point that I want you to meditate on. It's this. Work and rest will be fulfilling forever in the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is not sitting on a cloud with a harp doing nothing. That is contrary to the nature of God and man. The kingdom of God is actually the new Jerusalem comes down to a restored new heavens, new earth, right? And people work. There's city, there's civilization, and there is work, there's labor, but there are no more thorns and thistles. It's not frustrating. It's satisfying. It's fulfilling. It is the fulfillment, really, of your design, and you will enjoy it for all of eternity. You will feel productive. You will know you are productive, and you are doing good, and you're worshiping God with your work, and you're doing good to others through your work. That's ultimately our hope. Now, in the meantime, we worship God and do all the good that we can in a broken, fallen world. So, if I could have the men come forward and serve us, and this is what I would like for you to meditate on specifically as they are serving us the elements. The reason we can stop in this moment and we can really just rest and enjoy uh, communion is because Jesus worked, and when Jesus worked, he did the job perfectly. Right? All that God commanded him to do, he did perfectly. The tasks that God gave him to do, he did perfectly. And at the end of all that work, he gave his life as his father had commanded him to do so that because he worked we can rest right and now we can work not to earn God's favor but we can work because we already have God's favor that's really the reminder that communion is to us so let's give thanks as we meditate on the cup and on the bread of the work of Jesus fully completed for us Jesus said, I must work the works of him who has sent me while it is day. Night comes when no man can work. The work of Jesus was to give his life for us. Let's take the bread together. Bread is his body broken for us. The cup represents his blood poured out for our sins. Let's take the cup together. Jesus, we thank you that you were willing to do the work that your father sent you to do, even though it was hard and difficult, even though it involved suffering yet you found joy in fulfilling the will of your Father. And I do pray that you give us uh, peace in that, a reminder that we can rest in you because we are loved. It's the work that you've done. Father, we thank you that you have worked on our behalf and you continue to work on our behalf. We thank you that Jesus even now at your right hand interceding for us. Father, we thank you that that can give us a refreshed and a renewed vision and purpose for our own work. I pray, Lord, uh, for each and every person here that as we enter into work, 
this week that we would just have a fresh perspective. We would see the opportunities before us uh, to do good, to bless those around us, and to really just show you honor and glory through the way that we conduct ourselves. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Reminder, if you need anything prayed for, sickness, health, job, got folks down front who'd love to pray for you.